Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a late summer's day, clouds scudding across the sky in one of the all-time great Lakeland Valleys. I'm in Little Langdale with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. We're back in uh, familiar territory at the heart of the lakes. The views, particularly the Langdale Pikes, are stunning. It's one of those iconic settings that define the Lake District. That's right, yeah, looking up to our right over Bleetarn to the Langdale Pikes, a sight that never fails to stir the imagination. Now, we've been nearby before, Mark. We've been further down the valley with Bill Burkett. We talked about quarrying a little bit there and about growing up in this valley. But we've also been just over the watershed there in Great Langdale. This is a long time ago on Country Stride with a guest who gave us just a lovely introduction to what we could see on a a gentle walk there. And we're going to do something very similar today. We've not got any overriding theme. We're going to talk a little bit about farming. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the historic settlements, some of the historic routes that intersect in this valley. We're going to also climb up to an old mine. And then we're going to talk a little bit about current land management. And our guest, highly esteemed in the Lake District, who is our guest today, Mark? Well, from early on in our sequence of podcasts, very early on, we had Jamie Lund, who's the National Trust archaeologist. And he's been doing the job for a quarter of a century and knows the area intimately. Yeah, you're always lucky to get Jamie to take you on a guided walk. And that's exactly what we'll do today. I don't think we're going to go too far, are we, Mark? I think we are going into Greenburn. But I think in that time, we'll probably cover a huge amount of history and hopefully cover a great many areas of interest. Indeed. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I see Jamie's over there. He just arrived next to the farm and uh, we'll go and engage in a lovely ramble in Little Langdale. Langdale, what a gorgeous valley. I absolutely adore it. We're uh, close to Bridgend Farm. I'm looking over the Bleetarn Pass, looking north to the Langdale Pikes. Harrison Stickle, Piker Stickle, glorious craggy slopes there with sun dappling the slopes. The sky is uh, predominantly cloudy, but there's a bit of blue. I can see Blake Rig on Piker Blisco, the bottom end of uh, Wetside Edge, which leads up onto Great Cars, and to my northeast. I'm looking towards the slopes of Lingmore Fell. I'm in the valley bottom on a track. Many of our listeners will know this exceedingly well, but what they probably have a vague memory of, one of our early episodes, our guide then was Jamie Lund. And Jamie, you're with us again today. How fabulous. Remind listeners who you are and what your specialties are all about. I certainly can, Mark. And it's lovely to be here in Little Langdale with you here. My name's Jamie. And I am the National Trust archaeologist. I've recently celebrated 25 years in post this month. Where have those gone? Quarter century. Um, <laughs> you haven't aged in your job. 
25 not out. <laughs> you beat the cricket, anyway. I did, I did. And it's lovely to be here. I think this is one of my favourite spots. And it's also particularly nice to be looking through the, the saddle of the fells there towards Piker Stickle and Harrison Stickle. And it's one of those places that always makes me wish I had some gift as a painter. Because I really do struggle to bring to mind any more impressive views than the one we've got today of those peaks from our position. It is just so quintessentially Lake District and has all of those qualities that I think everyone who loves the Lake District will recognise. We're here on a slightly overcast day in July. Everything is looking very, very green, but it's not that pale, luminous green that you have on a summer's day where you've got high light levels. This is a slightly grey, drab day and the greens are all muted and flat and everything seems cloaked in that dark green bracken. We've got the dark green of the conifer trees as well, stretching off towards the pikes in the distance. And thankfully, the rain that we've had over the weekend has perked up the meadows. So they're looking green as well, studded as they are with the yellow buttercups. Glancing back again towards the pikes, my eyes are caught by the two very striking white chimneys on Felfoot Farm which sort of holds attention, particularly for any travellers coming through this valley. You never be squeezed through that little ginnel, almost. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Fellfoot and its relationship to the valley? Well, I certainly can. I've always had in my mind Fellfoot Farm as being the drawing pin at the centre of the map uh, of the Lake District. It really is located at the heart of that central mountainous massif. And... From today all the way back to time memorial, if you're travelling from the west coast into the central fells, your best route has always been through Estale, over Hard Knot, through Rhinos, over Rhinos Pass, and here and dropping down to Felfoot Farm into the heart of the Lake District. And that, of course, was the route taken by the Roman road in the 2nd century AD, in the aftermath of the building of Hadrian's Wall, when there was that concern to resupply and defend the forts on either side of the wall and particularly the area to the rear of the wall that was always vulnerable to the idea of a seaborne attack that could simply go round Hadrian's Wall. So we know this route was used by the Romans. You can still see some surviving stretches of the Roman road existing alongside the surfaced route today. I notice in the Dudden Bottom area, you can see it there very clearly. You certainly can, and it continues on all the way almost to the front door of Blackhall Farm. It passes through their farmyard and then climbs the fell to the rear towards the fort at Hardknot. So, yes, it's amazing that stretches of that road have survived very nearly for 2,000 years and can still be walked and recognised today. And then maybe, oh, eight, nine hundred years after the Romans had first ventured into Little Langdale, this became a special place once again, because just to the rear of Felfoot Farm is a truly remarkable feature that, as an archaeologist, I, I still am amazed that we get the survival of this feature. But it is a, a moot or a ting mound. A thing. A thing, yes. A number of ways of pronouncing it. All of them are right in my book. And it's this stunning tiered earthwork. If you bring to mind a sort of stepped pyramid in the Egyptian style or the Aztec style, something like that on a more modest scale built of earth and turf, it functioned as 
a parliament or meeting place for the discussions and making of rules for the local community during the Scando-Norse period, the period of which the Norse-speaking peoples had travelled down from Norway, through Shetland, through the Western Isles, through Scotland and into Ireland, and then were beginning to colonise the northwest of England via the Cumbrian coast. The Isle of Man has the Tingwall to this day, so there's an element of it in current politics. It's exactly the same derivation, it's exactly the same sort of thing going. Ours is slightly more modest in scale, which I think reflects the size of the population that might have been here. But you can sort of imagine that almost a thousand years ago, you would have had a couple of generations of these first, second generation immigrants looking around at their new surroundings, thinking about how to exploit this land, how to exploit this wealth of upland pasture. I imagine that the sort of conversations that were taking place were very similar to the sorts of conversations that you might hear within a group of farmers talking about commons management or even alongside the rail at an auction mart. This is an opportunity for local people to come together, work out how they are going to maximise the resources available to them to the best of their benefit. They're going to be talking about the quality of the grazing, the weather, who has rights to which bit of fell, who's overgrazing, who's undergrazing, who's a good neighbour, who's a bad neighbour, and cementing all of those uh, relationships, what we might call systems of reciprocity. It's a bit of a posh way of saying that in order to make a living and farm in such an inhospitable and challenging natural environment, you need to have friends and allies. You need to be able to farm communally, and it's those communal relationships, the ability to call on someone for help, the ability to call in many pairs of hands at certain times of the year that makes farming possible then and today. The boon gathering, when they supported one another for the sheep gather or the sheep shearing, they were known as boons, weren't they? They were, yes, boon days. I think the Lord of the Manor, uh, who of course would have overseen your common rights and therefore was critical to have his or their goodwill uh, in terms of keeping your farm business profitable and, and viable, you were obliged to offer the Lord of the Manor a certain number of free days of labour called boon days in any given year and um, we know that those boon days were often used to undertake communal land management activities walling hedging making good bridges removing stone from becks to deal with flooding issues all those sorts of things that today we might call in mechanized muscle and power years gone by you called in 30 or 40 people over the centuries that trade route, that traveller's route, that military road became a regular way from the coast into the heart of the lakes. Presumably when the farm came along, its function changed as well? It did, it did. I mean, one thing we often, I think, overlook uh, in the Lake District was the influence of the West Coast and the port trade at Ravenglass and, and lately uh, Maryport and Whitehaven. All of these ports enjoyed significant heydays in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. And one of the routes from the West Coast over into the Central Lakes was the route we're stood alongside and looking at today. And just as people need respite and a, and a break from what's a strenuous drive, would have been a more strenuous walk uh, or horse ride, you needed points along the way 
to stop and rest your horses, change your horses, perhaps grab some food or maybe stay overnight. And therefore, Fellfoot was one of a number of wayside inns where that sort of accommodation and fodder from the horses could be taken. And from the farmer, it was an ideal opportunity to diversify their farm business. Intriguing that, because the uh, name Rhino refers to horses, doesn't it? Hard not pass, the older maps show it as Wainscarf, the wagon pass. So there's all these references to the travelling, the people using these specific routes that are held on maps. Wonderful coming up this track towards a gate. We gained a bit of elevation and looked down on the valley. And looking right back to the west, great cars is sunlit. So that's a striking element. Challenging for supremacy, that famous view of the Langdale Pikes, of course. But what we gain from this slightly raised spot is a view down onto Little Langdale Tarn. And the flat valley bottom with the trees surrounding the great pasture there, which is full of sieves, rushes and the cluster of farmsteads that run around this setting and it tells you about a landscape that's become less agriculturally dynamic. Perhaps Jamie you can describe some of the changes that have occurred in recent centuries. Standing here it gives you a chance to talk about the changes in the Lake District landscape and particularly changes in the way that people have farmed this land because We've got over towards the southeast, Little Langdale Tarn. We've then got this area, you would call it the valley bottom, I suppose. And around that, and on the edge of that valley bottom area, is that row of current and former farmsteads. Fellfoot, Bridgend, Busk, The Beald, Stangend and Brow. As well as one or two medieval settlement sites that ceased to be farms in the 18th century. And the reason they're all clustered around that outer ring around the road or along the bridleway that we're stood on is because the land inside, the valley bottom land, was absolutely at a premium. You didn't build your house on your best land. The better land was so valuable that you left it alone for farming. You enclosed it within a single wall that's often referred to uh, as a ring garth, normally took place in the medieval period, and you created a very simple infield outfield system so that you could graze your animals on the outfield on the the valley tops and on the valley sides while the valley bottom you could do different things with you could grow oats for horses you could grow grass crops to feed your animals through the winter you could cut lowland peat if you had any you could manage pollards and woodlands on the valley bottom and the value of this land was such that, just like the, the common, the upland common, the valley bottoms were often held in many different hands. Different farms in the valley had a share, and that enabled everyone in the valley to have enough of the land that they needed to maintain their farm business. And looking at the valley bottom today, it's largely open, but you do have some very conspicuous stone walls and straight uh, hedgerows ruler straight making these rectilinear shapes and those are a product of some of the very last enclosure here in the lake district i would imagine 1850s 1860s the reason they're so straight is they were literally drawn onto a map 
by a surveyor with a pen. You then instructed the team of wallers to say that's where the boundaries go. And it's part of a, a phenomenon called the enclosure movement that swept through England between 1750 and 1850 and was best understood as part of that Victorian desire to improve everything, to improve industry, improve agriculture, improve our living conditions. I suppose what it's an expression of is people's desire to move on from the past, not to be behovent on your neighbours, on the decisions about how you manage your own land, but to bring that land in hand, to bring it into direct single ownership, enclose it and give you that ability to do just what you want. You then, of course, could drain it, improve it, and you weren't restricted by the tardiness of your neighbours. We uh, appreciate the uplands as commons, but you're saying that the valley bottoms were commons as well. That's right. I think the majority of Lake District valley bottoms would have been held in common, often unfenced, unbounded, but with recognised parcels or loonts. What a wonderful word that is, loont. And those loonts or parcels corresponded to different types of land use. You know, some were for haymaking, some were for grass cropping, some were connected with peat, some with uh, wet woodland or access to other natural resources. But yes... Uh, much of our common land in the Lake District was on the valley bottom. Looking down on that valley, you do see these, uh, what I might describe as canalised becks, very channelled watercourses that lead down to the tarn. When did that phase occur and how are we responding to it now into the future? The changes that have taken place to our watercourses have taken place at many different times, certainly over many centuries. It seems reasonable to me that if communities are going to the trouble of bringing their valley bottoms into agricultural use and enclosing them, one thing you've got to do alongside that is manage your watercourses because you don't want your newly built boundaries and walls to be knocked over by the first winter flood. So I imagine that the creation of field systems goes alongside and is contemporary with the earliest management of watercourses. And there are some documentary evidence to support that notion as well. In the records of the Fountains Abbey that had land holdings in Borrowdale as well as other uh, areas of the Lake District, there are very clear 14th century references to the, uh, the making of riverbanks and to the bounding of rivers. So I would suspect that many of the changes do have medieval origins. However... Not all change is so ancient. I know that this beck, uh, we're looking down onto Greenburn beck here, I know that a stretch of this particular watercourse was straightened and its meanders removed as late as the 19th century and that people were still straightening becks from the 1940s into the 1960s and even more recent than that. So, like so many things in the landscape, I think it's a real amalgam of different activities taking place at different periods. And we're going forward to a time where, uh, like in upper end of Ellswater in Goldrill Beck, where we're re-wiggling becks. We are re-wiggling becks, and I love that term, uh, re-wiggling. I think it describes exactly what uh, a number of projects like the one at Goldrill Beck are doing, and with good reason. I think land use in the uplands, as in every area of England, but particularly the uplands, Land use has always changed to reflect the needs of society. When food was the 
priority. The times of war, most famously in the Napoleonic War, when food prices, domestic food prices peaked. Every last inch of productive land was farmed. And you see these areas of ridge and furrow perched up on land well beyond the margins of agriculture. And you think, well, how on earth has anybody managed to grow anything in that precarious little place? But they did because the profit was there. It was worthwhile them doing it. Castle Rig Stone Circle has got an example. It's a great example. On Sale Fell near the summit. So many impossible places. But of course, society wants different things now from land in the uplands and one of them is water storage. We don't want to see our communities in the lakes and further afield affected and flooded by water that is falling within these catchments. Surely it's better for everybody if we can use this land to store more water and release it more slowly into the catchment so that it has less of a devastating impact. So I think beginning to unpick some of the drains and works to rivers, which have essentially sped up the flow. They've increased the movement of water through the catchment. It's possibly now time to reverse some of that and allow these, these wetlands and rivers to hold more water for the benefit of people and the places where we live. Well, we'll pace ourselves a little bit further along this loose trail uh, to the point where we might have to turn right. It's a wonderful wander up this old mine track, still used to this day by fell walkers, but definitely not miners. The view from here I refer to looking back to one's fell and to Ilbel and Frosick, very prominent to the east of us here. But we're in the Greenburn Valley and we've got the cascading waters, which you may hear, but certainly I'm visually watching the excited waters tumbling down the backside. I would rewind to the six or seven or eight or nine months ago when we were out with Mark Hatton on the other side of Wetherlam, looking in Copper Mines Valley and Red Dell, and we were looking at the different veins of copper. At the similar time that that was being exploited, they were sending out prospectors to find in the watercourses particular veins that would betray and telltale clues to where there might be further evidence of uh, copper in this greater landscape. And Jamie, you've pointed to uh, what is a juniper bush and it looks very dark underneath it. Can you tell us a little bit about that juniper bush? Well, you're absolutely right. Just below and partially hidden by that juniper bush is a piece of evidence of the earliest phasing of copper uh, extraction here at Greenburn. Um, that is a, a level or an adit. It's a horizontal void that has been cut by hand using wedges and metal tools and muscle power. There's no blasting powder, no explosives used. Stone uh, age, I'd call that. Absolutely. Painful work. And I very much doubt they were well paid either for their, their hard labour. But that extends into... The hillside and effectively it represents the earliest attempt to try and hunt through the barren rock to try and find one of the five copper veins that runs through Greenburn and we believe that that 
work took place just before 1690 because in a letter from William Pennington of Muncaster Castle, he refers to a well-established mining set and operation on his land in Greenburn. And certainly the remains that we can see on the opposite side of Greenburn Beck are very characteristic of that hand pre-explosive period of working in the 16th and 17th centuries. Do we know who these prospectors and explorers were? Well, I think they would have been local people from Ambleside, from Langdale. I imagine many of them lodged with farming families in the very local area and certainly would have walked here from those farms, from their lodgings on the six days that they worked. And on Sundays, I imagine they would have gone to church and then perhaps passed the afternoon spending their hard-earned wages in one of the inns or hostels in, in Anvilside and neighbouring towns and villages. Primarily, they're local people. I imagine that the people working here at Greenburn know this landscape very well and they are turning their hand to a range of jobs. During harvest time, they're working in the fields, they're being employed by the farmers and during the quieter periods of the agricultural calendar, they're finding work here at the copper mines. They might also have worked in some of the neighbouring lead mines and in the slate quarries, because I think it's only recently we've come to see jobs in industry and agriculture in the Lake District as full-time. We think perhaps prior to 1900, people had a range of jobs that they worked at during the calendar to cope with periods of busyness and demand in different professions. Money came very frugally and so every opportunity they would take and uh, it was a humble life. It certainly was. I think this is the era of Melvin Bragg's hired lad. We are only a couple of miles away from Langdale here and I'm sure you're familiar with the Nick Stick seat and the centre of Langdale Valley. It was a, a stone seat where if you wanted employment on that day, you were a hired hand, you sat there with a stick in your hand and if anybody wanted to come and employ you they would take the stick break it in half and give you that half and at the end of the day you'd go to your employer present the other half of the stick and if the two sticks met he knew he owed you a day's wages how fabulous could you remind me where the nick stick seat was well if you know where robinson place farm is you're really not far away from it just on the opposite side of the road um, overlooking the, the valley bottom. It's quite inconspicuous, but it's a long stone bench. Well, we're at the lowest level of the enterprise, uh, copper mining in the valley. Uh, we're going further up the track, and the sun is coming out wonderfully now, so it's uh, a great encouragement to see the metre matter of the copper mines in Greenburn. Come a further 50 yards up, arrived upon this impressive and beautiful waterfall, which is cascading down brilliant white, snowy white water, and adjacent to it is a great outcrop on the north side of it. Now, Jamie, when the prospectors came to this spot, what were they looking for that gave them a clue as to where the copper might be? Well, they were using their eyes and their knowledge of what mineral bearing rock would have looked like to simply follow and trace the line of these watercourses that really provide a glimpse, a slice through the geology of the area looking for signs of geological activity and mineralisation. 
And what they've found here, what they've noticed, is that there are two large areas of bare, barren, plain old rock. But in between them is this area of rock that looks really very characteristically different. It looks crushed. It looks as if it's been subject to huge titanic forces of pressure and heat. And that's because that's just what has happened. We're looking at a small fault in an area of rock where two large areas of rock have been moving together, grinding and pushing together, creating all those forces, pulverizing that rock and shattering it. And it's into that matrix of shattered rock that over thousands of years, rain and water has cascaded down, has leached its way down and left tiny trace elements of copper and other minerals. And over geological time periods, that copper has formed into lodes or veins that can be mined and exploited for commercial value. And that's just what's happening here. So a few hard-working men who knew about minerals came up the valley, looked at the, uh, this feature, but they wouldn't have had any rights to exploit them. So why did this get exploited? Well, mineral rights uh, often descend with the, the landowner. And in this case, it was William Pennington of Muncaster Fell. And like many of his friends and contemporaries, the Lake District landowning elites, he was probably looking with envious eyes at some of his contemporaries who were beginning to make considerable amounts of money from the exploitation of minerals on their land. And the way that people like William Pennington tried to exploit the opportunities that were hidden below the surface of their lands was to invite mineral prospectors, people in the business of finding and locating exploitable minerals and allow them to survey their lands. And normally that would involve walking the watercourses to try and see evidence of minerals exposed on the surface, made visible by the passage of water over the surface. And of course, for the person who owned the land, there really was no risk involved in inviting the mineral prospectors onto your land. You didn't have to pay them anything because the sorts of agreements that would spring up and that could be made was that the royalties or the income from any mining interests that were set up were split between the landowner and the prospector. Usually, one sixteenth or one seventeenth went to the landowner. Now, it was obviously very generous to the mineral prospectors. They could have 16 seventeenths or 15 sixteenths, the lion's share of any profit. But of course, for the landowner, it was money for nothing. So we'll plough on a bit further up towards the actual major workings. We've come up the track. I'm able to look back to the east and uh, see one's fell. Oh, nope, till the light. That's Red Screes and Snarker Pike. There you are. And Scandale Pass to the left of it. Amazing. In front of me is a very comprehensible and compact view of copper mine infrastructure. I remember when we were in the Copper Mines Valley, it's far more dispersed. Here, you can comprehend it at a glance, basically. And of course, the process of breaking up ore is a linear one from large to small. Jamie, what we're looking at here, you probably can explain what was going on. I think English Heritage got this site just right when they described it in 2001 as being of national importance due to the fact that it is one of the most intact industrial era copper mines 
in the country. And that because of that relative intactness, the different processes and the operations that were taking place here remain legible. And that makes it a great place to visit. As you say, you can understand the processes and the, the activities that were taking place here. It all does feel that it's at a human scale. What I can see is various areas of barren rock, uh, crushed ore spoil, and various buildings in various states of repair. Every one of these can be assigned a particular function because by and large the extractive industries whether it's slate or minerals that are being extracted they follow the course of gravity you tend not to push heavy materials up the slope so as you say the material starts off large and then gets refined down and crushed into fine particles moving down the slope so as I look to my left at the top of the site that's where you would have the main water wheel that took water from the nearby Greenburn Beck and used it to power a large beam engine that was adjacent. The beam engine powered the pumps in the main shaft on this site, which was called engine shaft. The material was brought to the surface and was then crushed by hand by people working on the surface under a structure known as the crushing shades. And the word shades has been interpreted to indicate that this was an open-sided building thankfully with a, a roof to provide the workers with some protection from the elements. But you can imagine bits of rock flying around as people are bashing it with their handheld metal hammers, trying to reduce the brick-sized lumps of ore-bearing rock into something that's more manageable, possibly down to the size of a walnut. And from there, it takes one of two paths onward. Both of them involve further processing and crushing. There's a second wheel pit and to the right of that wheel pit is a set of iron rollers through which, if you can imagine some sort of heavy-duty mangle, that these walnut pieces of copper ore would have gone through to be crushed. And on the other side of the wheel pit, you've got a series of heavy stamps. And the picture to bring in mind there are almost telegraph pole-sized pieces of oak with a heavy wrought iron stamp or lump on the end. And the water wheel is using a system of ratchets and cogs to raise a heavy pole. The material would be positioned underneath and then it would fall under its own weight and pulverise that stone into smaller material. The material then moved down, uh, down the slope into the jigging house. And the jigging house, if you imagine a sieve, a large rectangular sieve that's being agitated by a water wheel, so it's shaking from side to side, and the heavier pieces of rock, which are obviously those that contain the copper ore, fall out. They fall to the bottom of the pile and then can be recovered for further processing. There's one further stage, the appealing-sounding slimes tables. And in the slimes tables or in the slimes pit, you had these uh, rotating paddles, in wooden drums called buddles and all of the water that is moving through the site that might contain small amounts of copper ore is flowing through this buddle and through the act of being whisked in effect by this rotating paddle all of that heavy particle is settling out in the bottom of that wooden drum and can be recovered later by being scooped out and hopefully once you've gathered that up you have some copper ore that can be removed from site and sold. So what are these buildings we can see below that area? Well there is a, a range of buildings on the opposite side of the watercourse 
it's a large rectangular building, probably standing up to two, two and a half metres, and it's subdivided. So there's three buildings adjoining there. The one furthest up the slope is the Bothy. And we mentioned earlier this idea of men perhaps walking in from Ambleside, perhaps lodging at nearby farms during the working week. But some men would decide to live on site during the working week and they would be bunked in there together in the Bothy. It had a a bait room downstairs for cooking and eating and a sleeping loft, almost like a mezzanine, about head height where the miners would have slept. Have you got a clue how many people would have been gainfully employed here? I imagine in its heyday, which was the period between 1845 and the early 1860s, the period in which all of these surface remains that we're looking at now were set up and, and put to use. I imagine you might have had around about 20 miners working at this site, but we do know that it continued on into the 20th century in a very typical boom and bust type operation with various speculators coming in, investing capital in a new building, the driving of a new level, something to hopefully revive the fortunes of the copper mine. Those never worked. We can see from the records that quite often there was few as four or five people employed here. So what was the ultimate destiny of the copper ore? I believe the smeltworks at Keswick were long gone when this was operative. So where was this going? Well, we think this was going all the way to Newcastle on the, the northeast coast. You know, if you position this site in its historical context, you know, 1845 into the 1860s, you really are in that central period of industrial expansion and boldness in the British Isles. So the ore here, along with ore from sites from far afield are going to just a handful of major smelting sites. And they're going there because of the huge demands for the fuel for the smelters. By this period, there are only a few areas of Great Britain that can keep up with the demand of the fuel from these smelters. And Newcastle obviously is an area blessed with coal and coke reserves and wealth. So it makes sense for it to go to to Newcastle. The smelter at Keswick will have been a distant memory by this time. It didn't survive the Civil War. The smelters at Keswick, which we have to remember, were the largest in Europe in the 16th century, was seen as government property and therefore they fell foul of the parliamentary troops and rabble during the Civil War and were deliberately pulled down to symbolise the assault on the power of the Crown. When this was operative, the railway existed to Newcastle from Carlisle. Yes, the distance to Carlisle would have been hard won, I imagine, probably involving horse trails, Uh, Horses taking ore in carts or in packs, getting it to the station on Carlisle for an easier second leg of the journey. We've got a clue as to where the ore is going, ultimately, but it would be rather fascinating to get intimate with those features down there at the seat of the operation. Jamie, we've got right down to the base of this confusion of ruins. There seems to be some stone tanks. They look out of place here and they've collapsed. Can you explain what we're looking at, Jamie? Well, they are a remarkable sight. We've got one three-sided box made of thick sandstone slabs and then one that uh, has all four sides, but they've collapsed entirely 
like a piece of stone origami. It's sort of fallen into a recumbent position. And these were precipitation tanks. And they were used intermittently between the 1870s and 1906. And what they represent is various attempts to try and maximise the income and the profit from this site with minimal investment. And the idea here is that rather than bringing new ore up to the surface from underground, they are trying to rework the existing spoil heaps by further processing them. And the way they did that was through a process known as electrolysis, where these tanks would be filled with hydrochloric acid and then an electric current is passed through those tanks and into that charged hydrochloric acid you put scrap iron and copper spoil. The copper that's still remaining in the spoil detaches itself from the parent rock, attaches itself to the scrap iron. That all can then go down through the mill for for further processing and, and extraction. So it was a way of extracting the very last traces of copper. So this uh, dangerous operation was a last-ditch attempt to extract some kind of money from an industry that was really on its knees. It was. It, It was just the latest in a series of technological advances that enabled speculators to believe that profit could still be made from some of these rather tired and exhausted sites. We don't think that this was particularly successful. We know in other areas it was. It was very successfully applied to Alderley Edge in Cheshire where there's extensive copper mines. But here in in Little Langdale and at Greenburn, we don't think it was successful at all. And the use of electrolysis on site was abruptly curtailed when there was a leakage of the tanks. Oh, dear. Well, you can imagine, can't you? The hydrochloric acid entered the watercourses and extinguished fish life, not only in Greenburn, Beck, but also in Little Langdale Tarn. This was widely reported and the operation ceased thereafter. Understandably. I think we can put our way We've come upon an interesting feature here, which is, uh, well, OK, it's a beck, it's Greenburn Beck, but it's not quite what it seems in actual fact. I've just jumped across, Jamie's jumped across, Dave jumped across. It's an interesting channel, uh, but the control of water in this vicinity was a significant thing. And can you explain more about it, Jamie? What we're looking at is still the course of Greenburn Beck, but it's clearly heavily modified. What we're looking at is a, a series of natural rocks sculpted by water that have got a range of organic shapes but what we've just stepped over is a metre wide gully or groove that is quite clearly been cut out of the rock to ensure that even at low flow water levels the water can make an easy and predictable passage through this part of the site and the reason that the miners have gone to this trouble is that while the site was in operation they would have been really mindful about the management of water. They wanted their site to be dry. They didn't want the water seeping through the faults in the rock, which also contained the copper, to flood out the workings that they've spent so much time and money in accessing. They also want to keep the water away from the buildings and the processes that they've set up on site. And the way they do this 
is by diverting the course of the green burn back above the site and then ensuring that it has a easy and predictable course to flow. And what we can see, this gutter that has been cut out from the rock is part of that modified course. And of course, the management of water and the management of the water supply was so important here at Greenburn because alongside this channel, a large dam was constructed about half a mile above the workings and that provided a regular, predictable supply of water to power all the water wheels on site, even during the summer months when the natural flow of water across the site might have run low. We've come up a little bit further on this water course and before I describe what I'm standing on, I'll look back, because you can see over Luffrig Fell towards Red Screes and up here, directly above us, Wetherlam, quite a striking feature. And you can see Swirl How now, as well as great cars. Uh, swirl How, a swirl is a curved shape. Great cars, that's a curious one really because a car is usually a bog feature, uh, like an older car. So why it's called great cars is a bit of a mystery. Wet side edge is far more explanatory. <laughs> Wet underfoot. Uh, Weatherloam, I, I love that as a name because that's weather loam, the markers that were put on weather sheep, rattle or something. So it's something to do with cleaning the wool or marking the wool a smit mark or something maybe. Mm, interesting, all these terms have a local meaning, uh, sometimes a bit more obscure today. Now, under my feet, I see manhole covers and a bit of a wall in the back, which is running over a weir. So we're definitely upon something that's uh, pretty new. Jamie, what's all this about? Well, the route we've taken has brought us to one of the eight or nine high heads hydropower schemes that the National Trust has constructed in the Lake District over the last decade. It's wonderful to see a site at Greenburn, which of course is synonymous with water power, for the water wheels to power the crushers and the roller mills 150 years ago, that the idea of harnessing the power of water, in this case to produce free electricity to power up to 200 homes, is taking place. This is one of the schemes that was designed and overseen by a colleague of mine at the National Trust, Gary Sharples. He worked with a number of consultants to design and implement this scheme. And now, five or so years on, the site has settled down wonderfully and blends so serenely with its surroundings. The little bit of concrete that just caps off the manhole covers has weathered up. The aggregate has been brought to the surface. The lichen will soon be there. The moss is already creeping on, but it's, it's weathering in beautifully. But these are fabulous schemes. What we're doing here is basically capturing a small amount of water as it flows down the Greenburn Beck. You can see there as it cascades down a little chute and through a, a metal screen. That screen makes sure that you're not getting leaves and sticks and other debris into the business end of the scheme because just below that is a circular pipe which runs all the way down the hillside to a small turbine house near Felfoot Farm and it's there that the water arrives under tremendous pressure that's been built up by the weight of its own force entering into a turbine generating uh, the electricity and that electricity doesn't actually go direct into local homes it goes into the grid 
the income that the National Trust receives for generating that is reinvested back into our local conservation work. We're coming down the slope through the bracken on the damp ground towards the very substantial wall, but the head of us, I'm looking down on Little Langdale Tarn. And over to my left, Harrison Stickle, Pavey Ark, Sergeant Man. Everything that a fell walker loves is all here. We're talking about land ownership at one point because we mentioned that Munkester Castle owned this particular land. Now that did change and therefore will have impacted on the enclosures and various things. Where we're standing now is a really interesting place to look over and get some perspective upon histories of land ownership and land use in the Lake District because just in front of us is the fell wall that marks the boundary between the imbi, the enclosed land which is uh, managed by individual farms, and the open common, which is normally owned by, in times gone by, the Lord of the Manor, still is in some cases, but is managed as common where all the local farms have rights to graze animals and to perform other activities such as collecting firewood, gathering peat, uh, taking water, etc., for their own private use. In historical periods, the land that are standing on now, we're standing on uh, common land at Greenburn, would have formed part of the landholding of the Penningtons of Muncaster Castle. But the National Trust acquired this piece of land in 1985, so relatively recently. Before that, looking down onto the valley bottom and to the left, we've got the valley bottom that we discussed earlier belonging to Fellfoot Farm, and that was acquired by the National Trust in 1957. While the land over to our right the Tilberthwaite Fells area, that came to the National Trust in 1944 as uh, part of the bequest of Beatrix Potter, who acquired the land herself in 1930. And I, I think what that does is, is really illustrate the complex land tenure and ownership pattern that once existed in the Lake District and how there was this move in the early to middle part of the 20th century where this innovative conservation community that included people like H.H. H. Simmons, Beatrix Potter, Trevelyan, stretching back as far as Canon Rawnsley and even Wordsworth and Ruskin, there's this notion that the Lake District is such a special landscape that it's a sort of national property, to quote Wordsworth, and that there is a public interest in this scenic beauty and the wonderful landscape the Lake District is. Could you give us a clue as to the various things you're doing to manage this landscape now? I notice on the Weatherlam flank, there's tree guards, so there's obviously an attempt to re-establish woodland on that steep bracken slope. I think I would characterise our management today and in the future as an evolution of what are, by and large, traditional land use practices. And so what we're trying to do is retain and perpetuate what is important about the relationship between farm and common and look to support those traditional links between the seasonal movement of hefted, fell-going Herdwick flocks from the lowlands onto the uplands in the summer months. However, while we're doing that, we are acutely aware of the need for the Lake District to play its part 
in tackling the climate crisis and the crisis in nature. So while we're looking to support and perpetuate those traditional land uses and and practices, we're also looking to try and reintroduce and bring back some of the interest and biological and habitat texture and diversity and value in these areas. And what you're looking at over there is just one thing that we're doing to try and bring that about. You can see those little tubes of silvery mesh They're weld mesh tubes and inside each one of those is a young tree and we've probably got a hundred or so there scattered through that bracken bed and as you can see that bracken's really taken over. Of course the bracken gives you a clue to a depth of soil and I suppose you've got a diversity of trees as well there. We certainly hope to have, we've certainly got a good depth of soil as you say because the bracken's doing very well but biologically it's pretty boring it's not really doing much for agriculture it's not doing much for the environment or for nature so by trying to break up that bracken bed by introducing saplings and in time over the next 20-30 years bringing about a transformation in the reintroduction of a woodland scattered woodland we are hoping to not only stabilize the soils but also increase the the biodiversity value of that area and there's a juniper forest in the upper quarter of that Burke Fell, isn't it, there? It is, and those lovely big stands of juniper are pretty rare. They're notoriously slow-growing. They're notoriously difficult to plant in sapling form. So your best approach is to try and manage the grazing of those areas appropriately so the juniper can self-seed and expand out where it wants to expand out at its own rate. Could you describe some of the decision-making about where you plant trees. Do you just put them anywhere? It it might look like that, but you'd be surprised, I think, about the the amount of thought and sense-checking that goes into planting a stand of trees, just like the one we can see there in front of us. I was lucky enough to do a piece of work in Greenburn earlier in the year because we're, as the National Trust, hoping to get Secretary of State's approval for new tree planting on the common at Greenburn because all activities involving tree planting, new fencing on a common need approval by the Secretary of State for the Environment. So it's quite a a high bar that we set for ourselves in terms of permission and that's true for the land that we can see to the right of Greenburn Beck. But just four metres away on the other side of that watercourse is land belonging to High Tilberthwaite Farm, which isn't common. It's called Freehold Fell. So while it has the same altitude and character as common, it's not occupied by commoners, it's occupied by a single tenant farmer. And therefore, because it isn't common, we don't need to apply for that Secretary of State's approval as long as we have Natural England's approval to do what we do and it's funded as part of one of their agri-environment schemes. We can, by and large have a great deal of more freedom. So what you're saying is that uh, on National Trust land, which is not common, the process of planting trees is much easier. The Secretary of State would be horrified if I was to say yes, because they would see their scrutiny of the decisions as being part of their due diligence. And I think given the significance of our commons and our heritage connected with commons and commoning in the Lake District, which is, after all, runs through many of our special qualities at the National Park and is a central pillar of our inscription as a World Heritage Site. I feel quite comfortable 
with that extra due diligence on the work that we do on the common. Perhaps I've got rose-tinted spectacles on, but I choose to see it not as less or more difficult, but receiving a greater degree of scrutiny. Jamie, that's been magic. The whole conversation has, and I've really enjoyed going up to Greenburn Mine and getting a proper view from your sage-like 25 years in the National Trust. Thank you for joining us on Country Stride. No, thank you, Mark. It's been really enjoyable. Journey's end, we're back at Fellfoot Farm, or just beyond it, still got these great views, and it's been nice actually, Mark, hasn't it? I mean, it's been absolutely pouring with rain for the last, can't remember sunshine really, but today it's not rain, so we're really lucky, particularly as we arranged this podcast, I think in January, so... uh, fortune tellers of some description but what a great walk we've had absolutely jamie didn't let us down i knew he would be resoundingly interesting and truly was i know we sort of aimed to get to a copper mine but there were so many stories surrounding that our appreciation of this particular setting has been enriched now some very exciting news mark goodness me uh we have announced the guests or most of the guests for our country stride live event on november the 11th saturday november the 11th in ambleside you can find the full speaker list at www.countrystride.co.uk and it includes luminaries like dr penny bradshaw taking a literary tour of ambleside country stride favorite mark hatton he's going to be talking about gravestones of cumbria We've got Dr. Angus Winchester, again, past Country Stride guest, talking about field names, historic field names. We've got a great session um, called The History of Cumbria in 10 Maps. That is going to be absolutely superb. Amy Bateman, whose book I published, 40 Farms, she's going to be on hand talking about the stories behind 40 Farms. You're taking a guided walk, Mark. Oh, yes, I'll wander down to the Roman fort. We've got live music in the evening. We've got food and drink we've got a quiz and loads of guests that that i haven't mentioned most of all it will be you the listener who will be the stars of the show because it'll be a great opportunity to talk with fellow country stride fans it's lovely to be a part of a community yes that's why we've put this together just so we can have some friends it's quite an expensive way of doing it. But anyway, to find out more, go to countrystride.co.uk and tickets will be on sale very soon. We're on social media, Mark. Oh, at Countrystride1 well, on Facebook and Twitter. Not threads yet. Not threads yet, although our relationship with Twitter is probably in the decline. And next up, we've got some great podcasts lined up, actually. We're going to Air Force at some point. We're talking about an incredible woman who is not really widely known, a Keswick lady, Britain's first female salary journalist, Eliza Lynn Linton. Absolutely fascinating she is. We're going to talk about the early days of tourism. Yep, well, this is Country Drive for you. We cover everything eventually. There we go. Sign off from Mark Richards as we say goodbye for today from Country Stride in Little Langdale.